0: All right. Please open your Bibles to Nehemiah. We've come as far as chapter eight. We left off on verse thirteen. You may remember the Lord um, called Ezra. Well, actually, you put it on the hearts of the people. They were called by the Lord, and uh, they had this time where they gathered together, and they actually came to Ezra, and probably music to his ears, right? teach me the word or open the word of God. I don't think there's a pastor or minister out there that uh, can't wait to hear those words. Well, he opened the word of God and he began to teach them um, the law of Moses. So we know the um, oracles. It was really more the Pentateuch that they would have opened at that time. And he read to them. And it really caused a weeping and a breaking of the heart of the people. And that led them to this place where Um, Quite honestly, their own sin had sort of caused some sort of grief, but also, I would say, um, sorrow. And basically, they come back, the Levites, which, if you remember, they were to come along and assist the priests that way, uh, what we would say is modern deacons today. The Levites uh, basically quieted all the people and said to them, be still for the day is holy, do not be grieved. In other words, don't continue to, you know, Basically go down like that. I don't know how else to say it. It's the difference between conviction and condemnation. The two fundamental, fundamentally different things. And so they were at this point no longer convicted by God. The Word of God does that, right? We don't need to be somebody else's Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's faithful to do that. And then once we realize the teaching, once we realize the error in our ways and we repent, metanoia in the Greek as we know, we repent and we turn and we get right with God. It's amazing how quick the enemy, the devil, wants to come in and sow in that doubt, sow in just that, you know, sorrow uh, and condemnation. And yet, who's the one that tempt and tempted us to enter into that sin, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And so that's where they were at. They understood these words, and they, they, they rejoiced greatly, and... Um, that leads us to the passage we're here in verse 13 as they were drawing near to God um, and uh, we'll bow our heads we'll pray and we'll begin Father, we just thank you again for your holy word lord it's a it's a sobering passage as we read these things god it's a it's a constant reminder to me Lord and i'm I'm sure of us as we all gather that God you are so loving and faithful God you you don't compromise on truth, Lord, and we thank you for that. But God, you are not ever a God of condemnation. Lord, you restore, you write hearts, you bring a peace that truly does surpass understanding. And God, you're just so good to us. Please, Lord, we pray, anoint your word tonight. Go forward and speak to our hearts, Lord. I, I thank you that you got everyone here safely tonight, Lord. I know there's many at home watching tonight because of the weather, but... Lord, I do thank you for bringing all of us out safely, and we do pray for travel mercies uh, for all those that would be traveling and will be, Lord. So go before us tonight with your word, and we we just want to have the right hearts and the mind to hear what your spirit has to say to us this evening. We pray all this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. 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 So again, if you look at chapter 8, verse 13 in Nehemiah, we read, Now on the second day the heads of the father houses and all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. You think about the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. There were quite a bit of feasts and different things that were going on. What feast are we talking about here now when we talk about booths? Uh, It's also known as a feast of Sukkot, right? Or Sukkot. Um, But it's the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And you start to think about, I I put myself in this place, let the video run here in your mind. They're being told, uh, you think about how many years since they've done this to gather and to build these basically tent-like structures, where they'll gather, and, and it, it's with branches, as we're going to read, and they would crawl in there in this kind of like tent-like area, and they would be looking up, and they could see the stars. So stars, excuse me, and they would begin to tell their children the account of what God had done for those 40 years in the wilderness, and the provisions, and everything that God had done. So that's why it's known as the Feast of Booths, right? It's the seventh, and it's the last feast of the, that the Lord commanded Israel to observe. It's certainly one of the three feasts that the Jews were mandated um, to go back uh, in a pilgrim. All males, as a matter of fact, were to return back to Jerusalem, and they were to go and have a pilgrimage to go to temple or, you know, to synagogue, and they were to um, go back and observe this and appear before the Lord. Um, the place that he should choose. it's It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter sixteen, if you're taking notes, verse sixteen. And again, you look at the Feast of Tabernacles, you can you could see how important it is throughout scripture, right? In the Bible, we see the important events that took t- you know place during the Feast of Tabernacles. If you wouldn't mind, hold your finger here, turn to First Kings chapter eight, verse two. And you'll see that one of the most important events to Israel, because after all, their temple, uh, very significant for the Jewish people. You know, Solomon was uh, told to build the temple. David had a heart to build the temple because of the blood that was on his hands. And what happened during the Feast of Tabernacles? Solomon's temple was dedicated. Again, 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 2. So we see a dedication of the temple during this time, okay? In the Feast of Tabernacles also uh, we see that the Israelites who returned and to rebuild the temple gathered to celebrate under the leadership of uh, Joshua at one point and also Zerubbabel. You can see that in your Bibles if you want to turn to Ezra chapter 3 and you can read that same passage. And then obviously we see another time where we're at right now in Nehemiah 8. But as we're going along, it's amazing how many times God allows this feast, the Feast of the Tabernacle, and the significant events that pour out of it. And it just so happens, and I love when the Lord does this on Sunday, we're going to be back in John, and we're going to be in chapter 7. And right around John chapter 7, verse 37, we see Jesus Christ, where he describes, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you remember? You've read those passages. We'll read it this Sunday. What is so significant about that? Because as they would gather, they would turn around. And that's in John 7, 37, by the way, in case you're running chapter 7, verse 37. We're going to cover that this Sunday. So I'll keep you kind of waiting for that. But the idea of what he was doing is in a remembrance of, of how God took care of, and the provisions for his people, what they would do, and I'll mention it on Sunday again, is the priests would go down with a golden vessel, and they would run down to the water, and they would get, and they would come out of the gate, and they would come to the water of, uh, I think it was Sion, if I'm not mistaken, and he would fill it with water, and all the people would be on the mountaintop watching as he's coming down, then he would make his way back up, And then what he would do is he would take that vessel, he would pour it out, right? And he would pour it into um, a silver sort of laver or, or, or a basin. And in that basin was a pinhole, or slightly larger, you might say, than a pinhole. And what would happen is the water would come from the golden vessel that he got through to the silver basin, and it would pour out. And it was significant, Because what it reminded them is the way that God provided water also for them in the wilderness. Do you remember when Moses was told to speak to the rock? And what did he do instead? Because of uh, his heart, he did what? He struck the rock twice. And we're told in the Bible, in the New Testament, that that rock was what? Christ. It was Jesus. Jesus. And so you see how the Lord starts tying all this together. So the Feast of Tabernacle, uh, it takes place on the 15th of the Hebrew month of uh, Tishri. And again, um, that's usually our September, mid-October time frame, again, if you're taking notes. And the Feast begins five days after the Day of Atonement. And it's at the time of the fall harvest and when that had just completed. And again, it was a joyous celebration that the Israelites uh, celebrated uh, for the continued provisions that God provided um, during the harvest. And then they remembered that back and the provisions and protection that he gave them uh, for 40 years in the wilderness. So that's the, that's the feast we're talking about here and it was significant because they would gather and what God is doing here in this, era, in this point of scripture we're reading in verse 14 is he's calling them back to this because it's been many, many years since they've practiced and remembered how God was faithful. Why do you think that would be significant right now historically and chronologically? Because Nehemiah, and again, Ezra on the scene, they've come back from what? Captivity. This script and text was originally, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, written to those that came out of the captivity and came back to rebuild the temple, right? Zerubbabel, on his first journey. Ezra, second journey, 14 years later, we know Nehemiah came. Nehemiah is there on the scene. They're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. They just finished the wall. Everything is built back up. And so now they're coming back to what? The Word of God. That people just came up to Ezra, and they're saying, open the Word. And there's a revival that's breaking out. And they're turning around. It's almost like what we would describe as a great awakening for Israel. And so they want to get back to the things of Scripture. And God had commanded the Israelites to go back and to Remember. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacle was, so that they could tell their children, do you know how faithful our God is? Do you know, do you, our God brought us through 40 years where our shoes didn't wear out. He fed us manna, you know, food from heaven, angels food. And the provisions never once did we want. But we have to follow God's way. We have to follow his commandments, statutes, and judgments, and obedience. Because that's what he has for us. And if we do that, God will certainly bless our ways. And he will fulfill the promise of bringing us into this land. This land that we are now back in. That we were given by God. That's to be flowing with what? Milk and honey. Do you see how significant this is? And why is it also significant that Nehemiah, as we're going to read, the people are going to confess their sins. I mean, this is a true revival. People are going to get broken. They're going to come back. They're going to start repenting for all the things that they've been doing, all the ways they've been breaking God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. Man, I'm ready for that today. You know, you hear it out west every once in a while. You know, a group of young people at a high school, a college, you know, they get together and the, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And man, they just get... So beautifully aligned with Jesus. And a revival breaks out. Well, that's, that's what's happening. He's talking about these things here. They're remembering. He says, during the feast of the seventh month, verse 15. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil, trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written, right? So they're actually going to take these branches like off the trees that you would break and they're kind of what we would say, kind of like make a fort. They're going to make a fort with it. But why is it significant that he's telling them to go get these branches? Because if they had used some other material, they wouldn't be able to see out through and look out. That is exactly what God is drawing them to, to the heavenlies, to see these things, to to be with their family, to talk about these things with his children, to pass that on to the next generation. He says, do this as as it was written. Be, Be obedient here. You know, be thankful. God brings, God is the, he's the only one that brings the harvest. Right? He's the only one that can bring a revival. He's just looking for men and women to stand up and say, yes, Lord. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house and in their courtyards of the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and to the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the days of the children of Israel, none had done so. What they're saying is really around the time of Moses. Now, they don't mean that they never did this, like they never not had the Feast of Tabernacles practiced. We know they have. We can read that. in They're saying everyone corporately is practicing this, and that hasn't happened since the days of Moses and Joshua, right? That's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're reading here. And there was a very, and there was very great gladness, thanksgiving, and and day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, the Pentateuch, and they kept the feast seven days. Again, from the 15th through the 21st. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Now, chapter 9, we're going to come to here. It's about three days later. There's a three-day gap between that last verse of 18 and then the first verse of chapter 9. Now, On the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were summoned with fasting. I find that no coincidence. We just came off of our what? Our week-long church fast corporately that we just had. And again, they're fasting. Why? Because they're going to the Lord. But they're going to the Lord, not necessarily for direction. We, we went to the Lord in fasting to say we fasted Monday through Friday. We said, okay, Lord, show us what you have for us individually in our homes, our families, uh, what you desire, God. And then corporately, what do you desire from the church? How What is the bride of Christ? And, and the Lord spoke to us Friday. We came together. We broke the fast. And, you know, many different things the Lord told different people in different scriptures and different books of the Bible, things that God was revealing to them about their own lives personally, the church, different things like that. No, no. They're coming. to the Lord broken. They're coming to the Lord where they want to fast because they want to hear from God and they want to rekindle that relationship. You see, he's rebuilt the wall already. But have you noticed that they didn't dedicate the wall yet? Remember when they rebuilt the temple, the temple was dedicated, right? We see other parts of the city has been built, but not dedicated because God needs to do a work in their hearts first. And they need to be willing. And when that happens, that's when revival comes. That's when restoration comes. And that's where we're at. So they have this time of fasting here, right? And it says in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. What what does that sound like? With mourning, with grief, right? They desire to turn from, they desire to repent here. They're they're getting serious. And then those of the Israelite lineage... Separated themselves from all the foreigners. They separated themselves from all the pagans. And they stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities in front of their, or the iniquities of their fathers. Just think about that. Not only were they confessing and recognizing the things they've done. But they're looking back and saying, our forefathers, those who've gone before us. Generations. Not like they were doing some kind of, you know, yeah, I think of some of the cults out there, what they'll do. They'll turn, you know, the Mormon cult, you know, they'll try to pray for those that have, um, you know, uh, died already, and they believe somehow kind of like there's this holding area tank, almost like what Roman Catholicism would teach, this purgatory, and they have to pray them into, have, you know, some of these things. You probably heard or heard about these. That's not what they're doing here. What they're doing is they're recognizing as a nation how they and their fathers before them had gone away from God, how they've turned away from God. And don't we do that today? In the days we're living, we, as many of us, uh, you know, we, how did we get here? How, how, how do we, how do we, how are we at a, I mean, did any of us really think that there would be a question about gender identity? That biologically people wouldn't be able to figure out without looking down? whether they're a male or female. And I'm not saying that in a, in, a, in a hurtful way. I'm saying, did you ever think that you would have to tell somebody they're not a pink pony? I mean, did you ever think that would happen? People are laughing, but I, I'm, it's not a joking. I'm not saying it to be joking. I'm saying we are living in a time where we have extreme mental illness. They're given over to their imaginations, to, as Scripture would call it, a debased mind. I can tell you, I've certainly seen a lot of things in my life, and certainly a lot of things in ministry. I never thought that I would be living at a time where public schools or school teachers or people like that, and I know there's a lot of good ones out there, so I'm not, I'm not you know, drawing everyone in that. That they would be convincing children to go through gender-altering procedures without... I mean, look, it's bad enough to do that, but they're doing it behind the backs of the parents. I mean, did you ever think that we would be seeing people medically do things to your children without your consent or permission? I mean, they're babies. Nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds, eleven-year-olds. Think about when you were nine and ten. Did you know what you wanted to do or be. Maybe you did, but maybe it's different now, right? And and then to have to go back, all those, you know, as many of them have, they've had to go back and change or try to go back and reverse these things. Do you know the suicide rate among those that have gone through those procedures? It's, it's up to 60%. You know, we need to be helping. We need to be sitting down. We need to be investing in in, in these young people and loving them and, and telling them, Jesus loves you. I love you just the way you are. Just the way God created you. That's not a mistake. You're not a mistake. But I, n- I never thought that, that we'd be living at a time like this. I never thought that we'd be living at a time that the, the Supreme Court, especially in a Judeo-Christian land, the, the United States of America, that they would come back and redefine marriage. that we'd have over 51 million babies murdered. And don't think it's not going to come to the under end of the spectrum because who's going to advocate for those that become elderly and no longer able to make those decisions because there's a cost to provide care for that. And eventually that's going to be too much and too expensive. And yet so many people are indifferent. Life is precious. All of life is precious, as the scripture t- teaches us. And so they're confessing the iniquities of their fathers because they probably are sitting back and they're saying, I can't believe we've done these things. We were told not to intermarry with the pagan nations and Israel did that. We're going to read that in the chapter. We're going to go through. But this is what it means. It's not that they're doing something, you know, weird. They're getting right with God. And how many times do we turn around and pray, God, forgive, Lord, forgive the things we've done and forgive the things that are, that's happening in this country right now, right? The things that we see. It's heartbreaking, isn't it, friends? It's heartbreaking. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for one-fourth of the day. And for another-fourth of the day, they confessed and worshipped their Lord, their God. So for six hours, they're reading and having a Bible study. This is a move of the Holy Spirit. They, they, They want the Word of God. They want the truth of God. They're in love with the Lord, and they can't get enough of them. They want more of the Bible. And it says, And they worship their God's. You know what's what's amazing is God's word. It opens us up. It tears down walls in our heart. Only the Lord can do that, right? We we could try to help other people. We can come alongside them. We could you know we can share things with them. But man, I, I inevitably I blow it because maybe I don't say it the right way. Maybe maybe I come on too strong, or 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 maybe I, maybe my explanation is isn't you know maybe I'm not understandable, or maybe it's confusing the way I'm doing it. But when we read the Word of God, and, we, and it's just so simple, it literally comes right off the page and right into the heart. And God does the perfect work. We don't have to worry about what we're going to say to witness to someone. We just have to be available to do it and let God speak. And, and that's what, that's what we, we see here. They're, and, and they're worshiping God. I mean, literally tearing down walls. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadamiah, Emil, Shebaniah, Bunai, Asheriba, Bani, and Chetanim Chetani, stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. In this section that we're going to be going into here, this is one of the longest prayers that we have. In scripture, and up to this point, one of the longest prayers we will read, certainly in, in not only Nehemiah, but in Jewish history. What we're going to read here is what we like to call a summation or a recap. You know, like when we read um, um, uh, Genesis or Exodus, and then we may see something recapped in Deuteronomy or something like that, where God is going through in a summation. Do you know how many times God actually does that throughout scripture? Anybody want to just, you throw up your hands and get, you know, five times. How many, how many do you think God, how many times do you think God will do a summation or recap historically? Anybody want to take a guess? How many? 20. 20? Anybody else? If I had a jar of jelly beans, man, right? (laughs) It's eight times. You can open the scriptures, you can look and count through each time. It's eight times that God goes through and he recounts and goes through this history so that people are aware of what God is doing. It's very important. You know why? Because as human beings, I know I can have a short memory. I can have a short memory, can I? Humans, we can have short memories. So let's read this together. One of, the, one of the longest prayers that we're going to see is it recounts the summation of their history. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadamiel, Banai, Hashbaniah, Shebariah, Hadra, uh, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, and they begin with praise to God, a good, a good place for all of us to bring when we pray to God. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all the blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord, no other gods. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram, who brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You recognize what they're praying here? He's saying that God has chosen you and God has chosen me. Right? And he made a covenant with them to give the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the perizzites the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. And you have performed your words for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them. In other words, you delivered them from bondage. You delivered them from the world. So they went through the midst of the sea and the dry land and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which you should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinance and true laws. What's he saying? You gave them the word of God. Good statutes and commandments... You made known to them your holy Shabbat, your Sabbath, and you commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant, and you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You you provided their provisions. You brought them water out of a rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land, which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, scribing their proud and Self-reliance. Hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Circle how many times you read, but yet, therefore, moreover. But you are God. But God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. It's evidence that heaven's filled with forgiven sinners, just like you and me. Even when they made, they had made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God, you remember Aaron? And done that. They brought you up out of Egypt and were at great provocations. Yet, circle that, in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them the water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sion, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You remember he promised Abraham he would do that. You know, what we're reading is their heritage. You have a biblical heritage as Christians. The Jewish people have a biblical heritage. And what we're reading about is the roller coaster of life. The roller coaster that Israel as a nation, we see their sin, and yet we see throughout all of it, yet, but. And what's that all speaking to? God's goodness. Amen? God's goodness. He's so good to us. And you brought them in the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. Again, that's during the time of Joshua. And you subdued before them. Sorry, so the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them and the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey and possessed houses full of all the goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat. That doesn't mean that they were gluttoned. What it means is they enjoyed the goodness of God. And they delighted themselves in the great goodness. What is God telling us up to this point when he brought them in? It is as he said, God's best is best. He brought them into a land where there were all these pagan nations who had been sinning for 400 plus years. God was long-suffering. Eventually they had to go. He was bringing Israel to be a nation that would witness to the surrounding land, people, nation groups, that God loves them. God wants to redeem them, but they have to turn to God um, because they had turned to everything but God. And so because of all this stuff that they had built up, their infrastructure, all of this, When they came in, everything was built. Do you know what's incredible about a cistern? A cistern just isn't like any other kind of well. It's a well that's dug and it's lined with cobblestone or stone or concrete. Lisa and I lived, as you know, we're from Rochester, New York originally, or before we came here, I should say. And you might remember, we've told you stories. We had an old farmhouse when we were up there. We lived across from a 60-acre horse farm. And we had a, a, an old farmhouse built in, uh, many, 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 many years ago. I can't remember if it was the early 1900s or 1890s or something like that. And we had fixed it up. And one of the things that was really cool was in what would have been sort of off the, the living room space, because they, they had kind of added rooms on over the, over the years, is we had, if you would have gone straight below, we had a cistern. We had an area that was concrete that was, you know, basically fixed up and built, but it was an original cistern. And I did some research in the local town and talked to the historian. I said, what would they have had that cistern for? I've, I've read about it in scripture. He says, well, do you realize back in the day, you know, people didn't have running water in their homes? Just, you know, we take it for granted today, right? We, we know that. But if you travel to a third world country, pretty common, right? You go get buckets of water or you're even fortunate if you have water. Sometimes you have to dig a well or something like that. So what they would do is they would take this water and they would actually hand, if you had a, you know, if the family was pretty well-to-do, they actually would have a pump a lot of times in like off, like what they would call a maid's quarter or an area off the living room area. And the women would occupy that area. So there would usually be a bowl and you had a pump. And what you would do is you would take that water, was not potable water to drink but it would be used to refresh during the day. And for women, for their hair, they would use it, as I was reading the historian, told me, they would use it because they thought it preserved or kept the, the color of their hair, you know, their original natural color. They thought there was something to that. And so when you read about this, this isn't just something like, oh, we're coming in and there's a, a well that's 80 foot deep. They're talking about a cistern. That would have been very, very valuable. And God has provided all of that, right? And He's saying that you went into houses and it was already full of goods. The cabinets were full. Nothing was bare. There were fruit trees planted and the trees had fruit on it. Literally could walk up and pick up a, a piece of fruit and begin to just eat. And they were delighted in the goodness. You know, when God tells us heaven is going to be amazing... He's not exaggerating. He's not exaggerating. Heaven's going to be wonderful. Everything God does is wonderful. Nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them. We can think of many a prophet. To turn them to yourself. And they were great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies. You think about the Assyrian invasion. Who opposed them. And in the time of their trouble that they cried out to you. You heard from heaven according to your abundant mercies. You gave them deliveries who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest. They again did evil before you. Again it's the roller coaster. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies. So they had dominion over them, yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. God is a God of second chances, and he testified against them that you might bring back, bring them back to your law, bring them back to the word of God. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, with which If a man does, he shall live by them. Do do you know that's really important? Underline that in your scripture. How do you explain this to, have you thought about it? How would you explain this to someone uh, that claims to be a Christian, yet when the word of God is open, they read passages in the word of God, and they say, no, that doesn't apply to me. Is there a hypocrisy to that maybe? Or, you know... I think about that today because I think about the biblical literacy that we have, right? You've heard me talk about that before, you know, taking the Bibles out of schools in the 60s. Other than Christian schools and Christian colleges, where else are our young people getting the Word of God? If not in their homes, where else are they getting the Word of God anymore? And so they begin to err in their ways. And many times, if, if you don't stay in the Word of God and read the Word of God... I mean, I know the first time I read the Word of God, I was surprised by all that I read. Things that I thought. Again, I was raised Roman Catholic. I was raised, you know, I thought religious. Only to open my Bible and find that so many of the things that I thought were true or were taught to believe through rituals or traditions or things like that had nothing to do with the Word of God nor a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were things that men or women added on to God's Word as a works-based mentality to try to earn a right relationship or salvation. And on the contrary, I also think about times when I was young and, you know, many of us, we made excuses for things that we did. You know, I think of our young people that, you know, shack up together. They start living together. They're, They're... having relations out of wedlock, and they're, you know, yeah, pastor, you know, well, I love her, and you know, I'm going to marry her. But what's the Bible say? You're a daughter of God. He wants to present you without blemish. You're a son of God. These are not things we get to sort of debate. These are not things we get to sort of arbitrate and say, well, Yeah, God, you know my heart. You know I really love her, so now it's okay. We can fornicate. No. But why aren't people talking about that anymore? Because we're living in a time just like the time of the judges. where Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. This is going to be termed the decade of humanism. The decade of relativism, right? Everything's relative. What's good for me may not be good for you, but that's okay. You do what you want to do as long as you don't affect me. The problem is my sin stains. And my sin reproduces. And when I sin, it affects you. And when you sin, it affects me. And to pretend as though we're walking around in bubbles and that our sin doesn't affect other people is at best ignorant, at worst just downright disobedient. And I think about that for our young people. And My prayer is for our young people, you're going to change the world, how? one heart at a time with the truth of the gospel. It's happened before in the Jesus movement. Hippies, young people, 17 through 25, through the Holy Spirit, they revolutionized the world. I believe God wants to do that again. Again. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks. Oh, we see how they respond. And would not hear. Yet for many years they had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. God is long-suffering. He's patient. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land, Assyria and Babylon. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them for you are a God, for you are a God, gracious and merciful. Circle that in your Bible. That's your God. There's not a single person in here that whatever we've done, we can't go back to God, repent and, and get right with him, no matter how far we've gone. And that's, isn't that awesome? And God would just receive us that way. Now they finally come in verse 32 to their need. Up to this point, their prayer is all about God's glory, all about what he's done in the historical narrative. Now they're going to come to the point of God. This is what we need. What, here, here we're going to present our need. Now, therefore, our God, the great and the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the troubles seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people for the days of the kings of Assyria unto this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, even though we've gone through all this, For you've dealt faithfully. You are honest and humble is what he's saying to God. But we've done wickedly. While things didn't go our way, we didn't like the captivity, we didn't like the judgment or punishment, God, you were right to do that because you're a righteous judge neither our kings nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers, what are they doing? They're taking ownership here, right? Of disobedience. Have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in many of their good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that your, you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings. Who are the kings? The Persian king, Artaxerxes, right? He says, even in all this d- disobedience, God is still showing what? Kindness, love, mercy. He says, but you've set these kings over us because of our sins. Also, they had dominion over our bodies and our cattle and their pleasures, and we're in great distress. You know, in the New Testament in John, we're going to read when the religious leaders say, we're not under oppression. Really? You've been under the oppression since Persia. Well, really Babylon, right? Persia, the Greeks, and then finally at the time Jesus comes, who? The Romans. What do you mean you haven't been under the hand and why? He tells them why. Because of their sins. Because of judgment. And because of all this, and I love this, do we quit? Isn't that what he's going to tell them? Quit. No. We make a sure covenant and write it. You know what he's saying? It's not about what our parents did, it's about what we do. We press into God. We choose to commit ourselves to Jesus today. You and Jesus are a multitude. serve God all the days of our lives. It says we make a covenant, a sure covenant, and write it. Our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. What are they saying? What we call it in Christianese today, a modern term. What are they doing? They're rededicating their lives to Jesus. They're rededicating their lives to Christ. This is where you get to see one of the most amazing passages of that. And what's God going to do? What they're going to go through? We're, we're, you know, I'll have the musicians come up here now because we're we're at our time here. But as you read ahead in chapter ten, you're going to see that basically it gets broken up. It's going to list Nehemiah, but it's going to go through twenty-seven verses. And it's all about how they're going to literally sign this. Each person that's the head of their family is going to come and sign this. The noblemen are going to sign it. And how do they do that back then? They use signet rings. They're going to sign it. And then all of the common people, what we'd say, the flock of God. This is going to be a national revival. A national revival. The whole nation is going to go through a great awakening revival here. And unfortunately, it's a roller coaster. Because by the time we get to chapter 13, they're going to be on the downward trend once again. And yet, how faithful is our God? Amen? Just think about it. Now, wherever you've been, no matter what's going on, Jesus loves you. And you and Jesus are a multitude. If you stand, if you're able, we're going to worship God. And I'll just close us in prayer. I hope this is a word of encouragement to to all of you tonight. I know sometimes we, man, we, you know, we thought I blew it, man. I blew it. God wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you. He wants to set you right. He's looking for Isaiah's. Here I am, Lord. Use me. It's a great time to be in love with Jesus. Father, we just come before you again. Lord, we just thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your truth, Lord. We Lord, we pray for that same kind of revival today, Lord. Lord, I pray it would be a national revival that would break out in the schools, Lord, break out all over the cities. God, people would be, instead of gnashing teeth and shaking their fists at you, God, they'd be humbling themselves before you, crying out in love and asking for forgiveness, repentance. And Lord, you'd you'd give us time to reach the lost, Save those that, Lord, are hopeless without you, Jesus. God, I pray you would save now. Today is the day of salvation. And Jesus, thank you that you've made it so simple, Lord. You just want us to believe you're God and you died for our sins. And you want to bring us home when it's our time, Lord, or through the rapture, whichever comes first, God. Because you desire intimacy and relationship. Because you're madly in love with us. And Lord, we're here to say we're madly in love with you. So please, Jesus, hear our worship tonight. Receive our worship. And may it be a sweet sound to you, God. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ and God's people pray. Amen.